So let us trust in the Lord's command and knock on the closed doors of the heavenly mystery, that he may open his flowering abode to our minds. Then once we have reached the safety of that heavenly paradise, we may pluck the spiritual fruits without any of the first man's sinning. This is the book that truly shines, the word that brightly gleams, the cure for the wounded heart, the honeycomb for the inner man, the record of spiritual persons, the tongue of hidden powers, which brings the proud low before the humbled, subjects kings to poor men, and nurtures little ones with kindly address. In it there is such great beauty of thought, such healing from the drops of words, that Solomon's phrase which he uttered in the Song of Songs is apt here, a garden enclosed and a fountain sealed up, a paradise full of all fruits. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Today we're talking about the book of Psalms. Zell and how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. It's gotten a little bit warm up here, so I'm kind of enjoying the nicer weather. Of course, when I say warm, I mean warmed up to, a, you know, above freezing. So some people might still think it cold, but, you know, I feel like it's almost short weather. So We had, we had a couple days of borderline spring weather. <laughs> you know, I, I could get the grill out comfortably, you know, enjoy, enjoy a lot of that. And, you know, you got to take your time. You want to do it proper, get out a good charcoal grill, take your time, slow down, enjoy the little things. <laughs> but is, is there ever a time when it's not appropriate to grill? This is true, but I'm also not one of these super Northern United States guys who feels the need to every time there's three feet of snow outside to put on my swim trunks and go out and grill brats or something like that. I'm a, you know, I'm very much of good British stock, so I'm more likely to stay home and enjoy a nice stew indoors uh, during that kind of weather, but more power to the people who want to. Boiling all your food feel, but go ahead. (laughs) Who needs flavor when you got a cauldron? (laughs) But yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, always good to have that. But now, uh, as we are recording this, it seems to be sleeting a little bit, and the weather is getting cold again. That's where we are. So I'm sure we'll get another good snow or two in before Easter, but and the spring thaw comes. So well, what good. are you going to do? You know, the Lord causes the rain to fall. So exactly, I'm not complaining. It's just what you get for living in a temperate climate. <laughs> Could be worse. Could be boiling somewhere down in the tropics. Could be freezing in Siberia. Could could be living in a major metropolitan area too. So it can always always be worse. Uh, I love it. <laughs> so, so the Psalms. This is going to be the first of probably many episodes where we talk about specific Psalms, but today it's going to be more of a general overview of the book, what we do with it, where it comes from, why it's so important. Zellan, why are we undertaking to talk about the Psalms? I think out of all of the books of the Bible, there are few that are more beloved than the book of Psalms because, you know, people know particular Psalms and they love particular Psalms. And the Psalms have a way of helping us to pray. They have a way of comforting us in times of trouble. They have a way of helping us express things that we might not otherwise be able to express. So I think what we have in the Psalter is the, I mean, it's a perfect hymnal, really, the perfect way of expressing praise and adoration to the Lord in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves. So I think, I mean, I, I love the book of Psalms. I really do. This is, I, you go through it, I go through it all the time, and it's just, it's a great book to be in. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Um, you, you have everything there. You have um, wisdom about the way a man should reckon God and even reckon neighbor. You have, probably most importantly, the Messianic Psalms, which are foretelling the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a practical devotional guide present in the Psalms. And in a world where publishing companies are always trying to get Christians to buy new books and different books and different ways to approach this or that, it's really, to this day, hard to excel the Psalms in its depth of application for the Christian, and uh, and certainly for what it has to tell us about Jesus Christ. 
And if all we had were the Psalms, uh, we we could do worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if all we had was the the Psalms and we didn't have hymnals as good as they are and as useful as they are, we'd still be able to to praise the Lord and to worship Him in spirit and truth. So it really is a a wonderful thing to have. So. Well, I guess then we should ask the most obvious question for those who are wondering, what is a psalm and what is the book of Psalms? A psalm, and it's probably its most basic definition, is a poem that was originally meant to be sung in some way. We don't know exactly how they were sung in the time of the Old Testament. And I mean, and the church has sung them in lots of different ways and continues to use them in lots of different ways. But it is words in scripture that are meant to be sung or you know and in some way and so the book of psalms itself is the the collection that we have 150 psalms because we're not going to the east for any of their weird extra ones but that's beside the point 150 of these songs gathered together for the use of the church gathered together over a rather wide period of time how would you i mean how would you build on that willie well, I mean, I think you hit you hit the nail on the head there. We'll place it into its context then. It is certainly part of the Old Testament, obviously, mm-hmm. although perhaps not obviously to some people. Uh, <laughs> and it's 150 psalms put together, or 151, you know, depending on how you count. Right? I suppose we're we're going with the with the 150 originally written in what language? Hebrew. Correct, but we're going to uh, be LXX supremacists here and say that the Greek version was better. Well, you can, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it's only because I'm a Christian, Z. Um, <laughs> good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Is that what you're saying? Right. And so because it does compile works for more than one author and ranging from a great period of time, it really, I mean, once you start digging into Psalms, you're learning about the exile, you're learning about Moses, about the heart of David. I mean, it's it's a historical book as well right. in, in a number of ways. Right. And and so it is, it is bound, it is compiled, and it becomes part of the Old Testament canon. I mean, without dispute, it's the Psalms. Right. <laughs> and, and then, you know, on down through today, as you mentioned, it's used in Christian worship. If is there any Old Testament book that is as foundational to the faith as Psalms? Well, you might be able to argue Genesis, but that's beside. <laughs> right, but I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, just maybe <laughs> because it's the beginning. I mean, in history-wise, yes, but as far as use in Christian life, in home, in in the in and out everyday Christianity, is there is there a book in the Old Testament that's had as great of impact? And I I don't know that that you can say that. I don't think you can say that either, because if anything, just to show its true impact, I mean, there is no, if I'm not mistaken in this, there is no book quoted more frequently in the New Testament than the book of Psalms. And even, and like you said, quoted in support of, you know, showing who Jesus is as well. So, I mean, that he's going to rise on the third day, that all these sorts of things come from the book of Psalms. So we cannot discount the importance of, of this book. Yeah. And, you know, that that aside, um, and I'm going to go back to the Septuagint here because we're talking about Messianic prophecy. Maybe that's worth an episode, the difference in these manuscripts and how they deal with certain explicit Christological references. Probably. I don't know. Probably. We'll get there one day. <laughs> we get there. We've got more 19th century Lutheranism to get through first. And then we'll get we'll get to this. So, yeah. So if the Psalms is a collection of various songs and such, who, who put them together? Well, I think before we get to who put them together, I think it's worth pointing out that the Psalms themselves cover a wide range of time, okay? Because we often call the Psalms, you know, the book of David, and the New Testament often refers to it as, you know, being from David. And that is true because David wrote most of the Psalms. So you have most of the Psalms coming from around the time of the United Kingdom, you know, several a couple thousand years before Jesus comes around. Okay, now, hold on. For those listening, which United Kingdom are you talking about? The the United Kingdom of Israel. So the, There we the, go. In okay. the time of, of David, in the time of Solomon, that in that time period. 
Right. Just wanted to clarify. I know you weren't going British Israeli on me. <laughs> Not yet. Anyway. Not uh, yet. Not that's. <laughs> we got a few more episodes before they're ready for that one. <laughs> but the earliest psalm that we have in the in the book of Psalms is probably Psalm ninety. Although you can argue with me on if you disagree with that. But Psalm ninety is called no, a know. prayer of Moses. So that one was written by Moses. So, you know, that's even further back. You know, you're dealing like 400 years before the, the time of David. And then with some of the latest Psalms, which we have, like Psalm 137, for example, which was written after the time of the exile. So after the Jews were sent away into exile and then God brings them back after 70 years, some of the Psalms were written during that time period as well. So you have this gigantic stretch of Old Testament history that the Psalms are covering, you know, so in, in all these different authors and, and whoever's composing the Psalms. And I think most of them are composed during the time of David. I mean, I think you could make the argument that Asaph, for example, is somewhere near closer to that time period as well. But the point is, is that all of these were written over this long period of time. And so eventually you had to compile them all into the book that we have. I think that probably happened in a couple of stages, because if anyone who's looked at their Bible has noticed from time to time, the book of Psalms itself is divided into five sub books. So you have book one, which is the one to 42, if I remember correctly, book two, book three, book four, book five. And I think that this may have been an example of this, these Psalms, you know, as they were gathered through time, being collected into these smaller books, which were then finally put together sometime after the exile. So do you want to build on that, Willie? I mean, I can, I want to. Explore, but... No, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, it is. A collection of writings from a world far removed from the person collecting it, and then all the way up to the time um, of the of the actual collection, almost, or maybe a little bit later. And again, that's very important because, as I as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's it's not merely a song book, mm-hmm. although it is a song book, but it's also something of a historical record. And so that's that's a tremendous thing here, and. I think it does build upon something that's important for us who believe the the Bible, and that is that God preserves His word, and this is how you're seeing it seeing it happen. God is, you know, we sometimes think, I mean, not really, but sometimes people get the idea that Christians believe that God just gave somebody the book, right. like Joseph Smith finding the tablets or something. But <laughs> but it's it's actually preserved. To a number of different ways, and I think this historical record keeping is one way that it's preserved on down through the years. So it's it's recorded, preserved, and then used by the church, and then re-recorded for for pres- for literal preservation's sake in in some ways. Sure, and and that is important because that is how God keeps His word, and I think it's rather important for us in this age of textual criticism and all this other stuff that we'll get flamed for even talking about. Because I I think the popular thing now is to say that, you know, just regular pastors don't know much about textual criticism and we should just stay out of it. So I won't talk about the manuscripts and such. I will simply say (laughs) that God preserves his word through means. And the predominant means by which God preserves his word is its use. So what is continually used? And the Psalms are continually used, so they're com- written, compiled, used, and, and then preserved through that usage, if that makes sense. Yes. So so you might find some other ancient books somewhere with some Christian or Jewish overtones, but that doesn't make them Scripture. They weren't recognized as such. They weren't in use. They weren't preserved for a reason. There's a reason that they were gathering dust in a cave somewhere or something. Well, that sounds like I'm talking about Dead Sea Scrolls, but (laughs) that's not really what I'm talking about. And and so I do think we have to look at it that way. I, I believe that we need to give greater weight to the church's use of Scripture than to some academic dudes somewhere who are only looking at it as as a historical artifact. That that God's hand is actually in the preservation of these words. I mean, I don't really know 
If you disagree, Zellin, feel free to. No, I, I'm, I'm tracking right there with you. I just, I want to point out a couple other things about the, the Psalter before we get into the next section. But okay, yeah, let's go. Okay, no, go, go no I, I think all the points that you've made is good. I mean, yes, the, the usage of the, how the church has used these various books should factor into how we treat them as well, because you know, if, if the church has seen has treated them with the reverence they deserve, you know, that is, that is decisive. I really do think that is the case. But right. one of the things that I wanted to point out with like the, the smaller books, the books one, two, three, four, and five in the book of Psalms is you might notice like in Psalm 41, verse 13, where it says, blessed be the Lord God, be, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So you kind of have this closing of that sub book. And so, and also when you get to example at the end of the second book, where it says the prayers of David are ended. I think that's also another indication that, like like you were pointing out, this is not just done all at once, but was brought together over time and then finally compiled at some point in, you know, after the exile into what we have as the book of Psalms. Yes, and I do want to point out that this is really only the case for Psalms, right? at least to this degree. So we don't subscribe to the to the view that's, sort of starting to die off that says that big chunks of the Old Testament are just Frankenstein's monsters, right. just kind of sewed together from other parts with different contributors and things like that. You know, to say that like Moses didn't write the books of Moses, that sort of thing. That's not what we're saying in this no. case. Psalms is, the Psalms are different just because of their nature, the nature of their composition. So there's nothing to worry about no. there. And it's the same, the same is true also for Proverbs, even though yeah, Proverbs which was too, yeah, uh, largely written by Solomon, but it was finally compiled in the days of Hezekiah. And you have verses yeah, that actually say as much. So, I mean, this isn't like engaging in higher criticism or something like that. This is just literally what the Bible says. I mean, I'm just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is just the words right in front of us here. Right. Absolutely. Finally, and this is maybe just uh, my final thought before we get into to the next section... It is finally compiled sometime after the exile, and traditionally that was said to be done by Ezra. Now, I think that's a great thought, and I think it's as good of a theory as any, but it can't be proven. So Ezra, of course, who mm-hmm. you know, is, we read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, that he is the one who is responsible for compiling this book finally. Again, can't be proven, but it's as good as theory as any, right? Right, and, but it makes, it makes sure. sense. And it's it's got legs, I suppose. <laughs> but things, you know, it gets a little murky, right. um, we'll admit. So now we're not going to get into the Psalms in this segment because we only have a couple minutes left. But before we get there, we're going to be talking about the different types of Psalms. And right. we'll go through them kind of one by one. But what are the, let's say, four types we're going to be looking at in the next segment? Although this is not exhaustive by any means, because there are lots of different ways to classify the psalms, the ones, uh, the categories that we're going to be looking at would be psalms of comfort, psalms of praise, psalms of lament or of sadness, you know, expressing my sorrow over something, and also everybody's favorite group of psalms, the imprecatory psalms or the curse psalms, and how we should approach those as Christians today. So those are the four that we're going to be looking at. And as we're talking about those four, too, I think we'll also talk a little bit about how we can see Christ within the Psalms. And so this isn't just like shoehorning him in, but the way that the Psalms actually speak about Jesus and looking forward to him. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with some word fitly typology just after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast, available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, and we're talking the book of Psalms. Well, in the last segment, we talked about the history of Psalms, how we got them, why they're important, how our gracious God preserves His Word for His church forever and ever. And now we are going to talk about Psalms specifically. Now, we might give more Psalms, and even maybe these same Psalms, a more exhaustive treatment um, in some episodes down the road, but we're going to look at four different types of psalms using one psalm from each of these categories as kind of an example. And I think really the first one that we'll begin with is not exactly an unfamiliar psalm. Would you think that that's fair to say? That's understating it, but yes, yeah. go on. Yeah, even <laughs> you know, even the pagan somewhere in, in the jungle somewhere kind of somehow knows Psalm 23. And we're going to categorize it as a psalm of comfort. And why might we be doing that, Zillin? I think it's a psalm of comfort because people rightly turn to it in times of great distress, especially at, I've read this psalm many times at deathbeds. It is a well-beloved psalm because, you know, it talks about the Lord leading us even in the midst of, you know, darkness and terrible things and knowing that the Lord will comfort us in the midst of everything and that he will take care of us no matter what. So I really do think Psalm 23, as you know, the Lord is my shepherd, is in, is one of the most beloved psalms for a good reason, because it is so comforting, right? Yeah, and, you know, where do we hear it most often? Well, at, at deathbeds, uh, very yeah. often, or at funerals. Or funerals, and I think for that reason, in, in some people's minds, they kind of associate it with death, which is fine, but it almost has a negative connotation you know, in some people's ears, sure, because they, they just associate it with sad times. Well, the whole point is, is that it's a comfort in dark times. Right. So shall we read through it and talk about it a bit? Sure. We'll just read the, I'll read the first three verses here. It'll break okay. it down into three sections. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's not the King James, Willie. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought we were reading the Bible, and here we are. <laughs> but no, this is one of those that is, I mean, that, that didn't sound too bad. If we don't hear it in the King James, we're like, wait a minute. What's wait going a minute. On here? Something, something's not right. <laughs> but anyway, um, inferior translation aside, Zellin, let's go on, take a look <laughs> Sorry, lyrically inferior. That's all I mean. I know what you mean. Uh, I know what you mean. Well, I'm thinking for those out there who are who have their ESVs or NASBs or something like that. That I'm just I'm just joshing you, folks. It's okay. <laughs> You'll be all right. Although if you're using like TNIV, the Message, or or something, then please consult your local Bible bookstore and amend that. We're we're getting out into the weeds now, though. That's right. Or or you know what we could plug the EHV, right? Well, sure. The the Evangelical Heritage Version from our uh, Wells friends. I, but anyway, I don't have that in front of me though. But anyway, that's right. Psalm twenty three. Go on. But anyway, so you know, talking about the, you know the Lord being our shepherd, of course, is a beloved image in the Bible. If only because, like you know, in John, where it talks about Jesus being the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And that, and that also uh, emphasizing that he is my shepherd, and as opposed to just saying he is a shepherd, but he is my shepherd, is something that I think is also comforting to us in times of, you know, when we need to see, seek that kind of comfort. Well, okay, okay, let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Why would, why would having a shepherd be comforting? Because, see, I'm a single person who don't need no man, <laughs> is how a lot of people take it. <laughs> That's not me, by the way. That's my imaginary objector. I'm the opposite of everything I just said. To, so don't get the wrong idea. Got to over-explain in the podcast world in this, in this current year. In the current anyway, year. Yeah, exactly. In the current year, I have to remind people I'm joking. So, you know, we who have families who understand patriarchy, headship, that sort of thing, and as fathers ourselves and husbands— it might and pastors, most obviously, we don't. It might not be so foreign to to those of us like that listening. But 
for a lot of people, the idea of having a shepherd implies that they're a sheep and they're just being pushed around here and there. Why is the Lord being our shepherd a good thing? Well, because as it says, you know, he takes care of us. So we don't want to think of a shepherd as being a tyrant or any, you know, having any kind of authority or headship as being simply tyranny. But the Lord being our shepherd means that he is leading us, that he is showing us the way that, you know, he wants us to go because he knows how to take care of us. So when you grew up on a cattle farm. I did. How would you describe your or your father's relationship toward the livestock? <laughs> Assuming you had a good childhood. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, assuming that, you know, we weren't screaming at them because it's cattle, but that's beside the point. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, with cattle, you treat them well. So, be, I mean, obviously, because you want to treat your investment well, but you treat them well because, you know, you do care for them. You do want to feed them in winter so that they have something to eat. You do want to, you know, put up hay during the summer so that you're able to prepare for the coming winter. So, I mean, there is always this care which goes into taking care of livestock of any kind which right. is what you know even with something as simple as like chickens you know you have to feed them you have to give them the things that they need so that they will be able to thrive so that they will be able to you know live and to produce so i and i think when we think of it in terms of sheep as well you know that's helpful for us because the Lord is the one who is giving us all these things. And, you know, his hand is not shortened so that he's unable to, but he actually knows our situation better than we do, which is why I think that, you know, the imagery of a shepherd leading us is so comforting, you know, in dark and difficult situations. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And when we don't know the way to go, the shepherd is there leading us through the darkness um, in the places where we cannot see. So it is It is a beautiful image of a benevolent caregiver and right. leader and father. Right. There's a father image happening. All right. What else do we see here? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I mean, that's an obvious one. I mean, that's continuing on this right. livestock imagery here. Um, he's giving you good food. Okay and letting you rest in good places. Now, we're assuming the pasture here is lush and nice, right? It's green pastures. It's not... Are the Badlands pretty bad as far as that goes? Or is that just the name? <laughs> well, I mean, it turns <laughs> brown pretty quick most years, yes. But even right. then, they're not going to starve by any means. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> and then, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Right. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Uh, what does that mean? Well, to lead in the paths of righteousness, of course, means, you know, to make us holy, to lead us in the way that he would have us go, but it's being done for the sake of his holy name. And this is actually pointing to God in his faithfulness toward us, because even when we are faithless towards God, God does not fail to keep his promises. I mean, we see that with the Israelites, for example, who strayed away from the Lord again and again and again. And yet the Lord says, you know, it's not for your sake that I'm about to do all these wonderful things, but for the sake of my holy name, so that, you know, so that the nations will know that I can do this and that I am faithful and that I am true. So to do this for his name's sake is really a reflection of who God is as this faithful and true shepherd of our souls. Yeah, very good. All right, shall we move on to the other verses? Yeah, let's get, so we can get through another psalm here, too, before this section ends. No, this is good. Don't get me wrong. We just got... No, but we've got to, we got to go, you know. <laughs> okay, so verse, starting at verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I'll just finish out the psalm here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Are you bowing? Yeah, maybe. Well, and I mean, again, you see this continuation of this idea of a shepherd leading his flock through difficult situations, you know, even in the uh, shadowy valley where there is potential danger. The Lord is there with his staff to guide us and to, you know, direct us. 
And I mean, a lot of this, of course, is the imagery of shepherds in the ancient Near East and the way that they took care of their flocks. But I think there is, you know, I mean, it is it is a beautiful picture to see how the Lord is taking care of us, even when we're not, you know, fully sure of what's going on around us. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and so there, I mean, there's comfort for the soul. It is there for when a Christian feels lost or forsaken or like a sheep without a shepherd. Here is the psalm that gives you comfort saying, no, the Lord is your shepherd. You will lack for nothing. Follow him. So there we go. Of course, I was thinking, I was reading this psalm and thinking of like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, Pope and Pagan and <laughs> and the slow right. of despond, but maybe we're getting really far afield now. That's right. Well, yeah, it doesn't mean, like, he's going to get you through it. It just might not be that easy. <laughs> uh, well, do you, want to, do you want to say anything else about Psalm 23 then, Willie? Uh, no, not right now. I think, you know, this might be one we come back to in later episodes. You never know. Sure. So let's uh, let's let's talk about psalms of praise. Okay. Well, the psalms of praise within the book of Psalms are those that, you know, we get words like hallelujah from or alleluia, you know, the that they are praising God for what he has done and giving thanks to him for his steadfast love endures forever, to quote 136. You know, all of these wonderful things that God has done and giving thanks back to him for it. And probably one, uh, you know, pretty well-known psalm of this type would be the very last psalm in the book of Psalms, of course, Psalm 150. And I'll just read it real quick because it's not very long. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Loud boiling test tubes and, oh, wait. <laughs> Careful. We don't want to get a letter. I'm just I'm just now. feeling feisty today. But anyway, that's right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, come on. Mighty heavens versus firmament of his of his power. Right. But now we're back to translations again. <laughs> so what does this teach us about praise? I think it teaches us that praise is, well, I would say, first of all, is always rooted in what God has done for us that God's action comes first, and therefore we praise him for the things that he has done. We talked a little about this a little bit in the worship episode where, you know, worship is always rooted in God first, and then it's our reaction, which is equally important, but it's our reaction to what he has done. So praise recalls God's wondrous works and his mighty deeds, you know, and then praises him accordingly with all that we have because of what he has done for us. You want to add to that? No, I think that's a perfect summary, especially the praise with all that we have. Um, this is sort of one of the proof texts where we get the idea that we could bring in all kinds of odd instrumentation into the uh, into the worship service, because what does verse 4 say? Tambourine and dance. Praise him with tambourine and dance and stringed instruments and... Pipes. And pipes, yeah. That's where people think it means organs. Right. So there's maybe one ding, because the King James does say an organ. <laughs> you know, and this is kind of used as a proof text against exclusively a cappella worship, too. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's really beyond what we're talking about, at least in this segment. Sure. The, the, the point is, is that the Lord is worthy of praise in all circumstances, and, and really in all means. I mean, like you said, like whatever means we have. And sometimes we think about worship only in terms of music. But, I mean, that's fair. You do have uh, Psalm 150, praise him with these things, praise him with music. Um, and then yet there's also the praise of tithing and thanksgiving and prayer as well. Sure. And so we we don't get the full, the fully orbed understanding of prayer just in Psalm 150. Right. So don't, don't break out the tambourines just yet, would be my... <laughs> 
Well, and when it comes to, you know, talking about musical instruments, especially in the Psalms, you know, we don't know exactly what kind of instruments were used in the Old Testament. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are commanded to use such instruments. It just means that this is a description of what Israel did at the time. Yeah. And we certainly don't worship exactly the same as Israel did in the Old Testament. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. There's no there's no blood stains on your alb. <laughs> well, not yet anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> just give wait till, we've not got to the imprecatory psalms yet. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> so any anything else you'd like to say about 150 here? No, I think it's a pretty straightforward psalm. I mean, just the and especially the the idea of, you know, just praising him in that continual repetition of praise, 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 praise. Um I think really emphasizes the uh, the, the heart of what these kinds of psalms are meant to do. All right, so the next time we're going to talk about will be the Psalms of Lament. And what's going to be our exemplary psalm for that one? Psalm 13, if only because it's one of the shortest psalms and actually is one of the best examples for that reason of a lament psalm and the pieces that kind of go together in a lament psalm. And what we mean by lament psalms, of course, is a psalm spoken or sung in a time of great distress, wondering, you know, oh God, why are you so far away? Why are you, you know, not helping me? Come and do something about it. And basically the way that uh, we go on to, you know, the way that that develops, because it's not just being sad for the sake of being sad. That's not the point of these Psalms. They are always looking forward to something. Even Psalm 88, which is arguably one of the most, I don't know how you want to put it, depressive psalms in, in the whole Psalter, even it has this hope which comes through it because of what it's looking forward to. But we're, we're looking at 13 right now. So, Willie, do you want to read this one? Yeah, I do have the King James just open in front of me. <laughs> and there's a reason I have this particular Bible open in front of me, as we'll talk about later. But uh, yeah, Psalm 13. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him. And those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved but I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. It is beautiful. I mean, I'm not, I'm great, not going to deny that. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, if you're not reading the Psalms, see what you're missing. Right. I mean, seriously, <laughs> the, the, the greatest poetry the church has ever produced. It's from Psalms. God, so I mean, you got that uh, going for it, too. And it's from God himself. I mean, you've got the Psalms, you've got John 1. You know, I'm trying to think of great poetry in the Bible. There's a lot of it, but a bunch of it's in the Psalms. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so what what is being lamented here? Well, and really, this lament psalm breaks down into three sections, okay? So you have the first section, the first couple of verses. You have the second section, which is three and four, and you have the, the third section, which is five and six. And these three pieces together characterize virtually all of the of the lament psalms within the book of Psalms. So in the first section, you have the question, you know, how long, O Lord, you know, why does it seem like you are so far away? Why does it seem like my enemies are getting the better of me? You know, why does it seem like the promises that you made to me aren't being kept? Okay. So there's this tension between things that God has said in the past and the tension between what the believer is currently experiencing and wondering why it seems like God is so silent and, you know, why there is such a, a dissonance or a disconnect between the two. And this is a um, an interesting thing for the Christian because we do talk about the dark night of the soul a lot. And I would point out, though, that this is for the truly distressed person. There is a sense in which we get this idea of kind of a faux distress that a Christian must pretend that he's under all the time. Sure. And, and you know, i got to really feel distressed so that then the absolution can come or the Lord's Supper can come and I can feel better or the gospel can be pronounced in the sermon and I can feel better. 
Now, this is legitimate lament, which may not happen all the time in the life of the Christian, may not happen every Sunday, we'll say. And what I, and that's not to say it doesn't happen. That's not to say that we don't feel actual contrition often, say, in the sermon or in our confession of sin or something like that. But it's meant to say that this is not just merely a psychological exercise or kind of a ritual going through a low point and then getting to the high point, saying a liturgical text. This is actual comfort for the actual distressed, kind of like how we would say when the person's conscience is truly troubled, that they know they're a real sinner and they receive real forgiveness, that that, that is who the gospel's for, right? Right. And so that we want to make this not into some kind of gimmicky thing to make like the idea that, well, I must be forlorn all the time, but it's simply to say that when you do feel melancholy or when you do feel forsaken, distressed, or oppressed, that here is the word of God for you and that it's okay to pray in these words of David, uh, because this is a very open and honest prayer, is it not? Oh, absolutely it is. And I think maybe maybe to just build on what you're saying too, the Psalms and all the different ways that they talk are not always going to apply to every single situation in our lives. That's But that's the glory of the book of Psalms. Because it's not like we are manufacturing these feelings, like you're saying, so that I have to feel this somehow. But in those times when I do feel that disconnect, when I do feel that dissonance and wonder, you know, whether the Lord is listening to me and, you know, that true distress of soul that we all go through from time to time, then we can turn to this psalm and find a very beautiful and very clear expression. And in the case of Psalm 13, a very succinct expression of what that is like. So it really does become an expression of our faith in this particular season in our lives. Very good. Well, hey, Zellin, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back with imprecatory psalms here on Word Fitly Spoken. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about the Psalms. Well, we begin our discussion of Psalm 13, a lament psalm, a psalm of lament. So before we can move on to the next part, we got to finish up this one. So Zellwin, let's pick up where we left off. Okay. So after the first section of Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, you have the next section, which forms the basic part of every of virtually every lament psalm, verses 3 and 4, which is talking about a prayer to God or a calling on God to do something. So if you remember the language of, you know, consider and answer me, light up my eyes, you know, lest my enemies say, you know, that this is going to happen. So it's this call to God and that he would do something to overcome this situation. So his enemies, you know, are threatening to overwhelm him Oh Lord, do something about it. You know, I am in the midst of despair. You know, oh Lord, come to me again. You know, it's it's this prayer language that forms, you know, a very large part of these kinds of psalms that I think is is also very comforting. And then with the final section of this psalm, verses five and six, you have another aspect of this psalm. And the final one, which is this is not just a call and then wondering whether God is going to do this, but it's actually a confidence. 
a confidence that the Lord has done these things for us in the past, a confidence that the Lord is faithful and true, and therefore a confidence that, you know, he will do something about it. You know, in the language of Psalm 13, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord a future action. I will sing because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the one who is in distress is able to look to God, to call upon him and say, you know, oh, Lord, I don't understand why you're being quiet, but I know that you will not forsake me even in the midst of whatever situation it might be. Maybe a great example of that would be the the psalm that our Lord Jesus Christ himself cries out on the cross. You know, the opening words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That itself is actually a lament psalm. But it's not just Jesus saying, why am I being abandoned? And, you know, it seems like you're so far off. It is that trust in the Lord who is going to take care of him no matter what. Because like verse three, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. I'm not going to go into great detail about Psalm 22 because I think that's worth maybe doing all by itself. But you see that that transition from the cry of lament to the confidence the one saying it has that the Lord is actually going to do something about it. Yeah. Psalms of Lament then. So when when are they used? Again, back to the second segment when we are in these times of distress, feeling forsaken. They're they're not just simply gloom and doom. There is actually hope in the midst of lament, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Even though when experiencing it, it may not it may not feel that way, I suppose. But there is always light at the end of the tunnel, if I may be cliched. So <laughs> All right. It's all right. (laughs) So are we ready to talk about imprecatory psalms now? I suppose we'd better because it's probably what everybody's wondering about. What is an imprecatory psalm? Why do they sometimes get left out of Psalters? (laughs) And why why are they still pretty good? Right. That's, yeah, that kind of is the whole issue at hand, isn't it? Imprecatory psalms are those psalms which call upon God to curse or to do something against our enemies, okay? And the the psalm that I'm going to, and I'm going to have to answer your questions kind of over the long term here, but the psalm that I want to look at as an example of this, a just brief example, is Psalm 5. And I'm going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 in particular. So this is, this. these are those verses. For there is no truth in their mouth, Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Pretty pretty strong language, wouldn't you say, Willie? Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, that's just Psalm 5. You you haven't even seen Psalm 137 yet. (laughs) Yeah. Now, why might these psalms make Christians uncomfortable? I think they make us uncomfortable because we think, and I'm going to put the emphasis here on we think, that there is somehow a conflict between the language of these psalms and the, the words of Jesus, you know, like love your enemies or, you know, forgive them or, you know, there, there seems to be this tension between what Jesus is doing on, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular and the language of many of these Psalms. But I think that this tension is more imagined than actual real, actual real you know, because, and this is why, Because when we're talking about the cursing psalms and calling upon God to do something, we don't want to think of these psalms in terms of personal vendettas. That's really, really, really easy to do, however. Right, right. They're they're not Charles Bronson's psalms. (laughs) Although that might be kind of cool. But anyway. That's right. I wish we could have made that happen. <laughs> that would have been a good cassette collection. <laughs> Charles Bronson reads the Psalms. <laughs> reads the imprecatory Psalms. Nine ninety nine a month from Time Life. Willie would be all over that. But the point is, is this is not a personal vendetta. 
This is always calling on God to do something, okay? It is trusting in God to bring justice to his people. And yes, it's using very strong language to do that, you know, make them bear their guilt, let them fall by their own counsels, you know, cast them down like in some of the other Psalms. But the whole point is, is that we are looking to God to give us the justice which we have not yet received in this life. Yes, and it's not immoral to ask God for justice. Right. 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 Now, we might not like the way justice is measured out, but it's still not necessarily wrong to call for that. And I, I think a good example, New Testament example, of at least an imprecatory prayer is found in Revelation, where the slain martyrs, the spirits of the martyrs, the these deceased, are calling out to God for vengeance. Or at least they're 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 saying, How long, God, will you tarry right. for, for justice, for vengeance? This is when somebody comes in and tries to tell me they're not martyrs or something. <laughs> even though that's the plain meaning of the text. I mean, in, in a book like Revelation, you, there's no clearer part than that. But right. It, but, but it wouldn't even matter. Even if you do go off the rails and think it's not actual martyrs, it's still a Christian's praying that God's justice be done. Right. And, and in his time, but they're asking, how long, O Lord? Right. And what are they asking? They're, they're not saying how long until something nice and cuddly. They're saying, will our blood be avenged? Right. And and once again, that's why they're martyrs. It's actual bloodshed, but death. And so you have it even up into the New Testament. And you're right. There is no contradiction here with the words of our Lord because this isn't personal vengeance, okay, in the way we think of it. One of the promises of the gospel is recompense for those who do evil to the people of God. And we forget that. And especially in this age where universalism seems to be on the rise, part of the condemnation that people receive in the last days is related to justice for the evils inflicted upon the Church of Christ. Right. And that's something that we get a little bit uncomfortable with. But I mean, the whole concept of hell we're uncomfortable with. And then, okay, so we'll admit there's a hell, but then they'll say, well, it can't really be a place of judgment. And so we just soften it and soften it and soften it to the point of it almost doesn't exist. But I, And I think you honestly have to look at these in light of judgment and in light of hell, ultimately. Because that's how a lot of these psalms, well, some of the psalms are actually answered in history, but other times it's we're just having to wait until the, the last day. And I think another thing to point out with that, too, is that when we're dealing with the judgment that we are looking for, Jesus being victorious over his enemies is very much a part of the imagery of the New Testament, you know, that Jesus will reign in the midst of his enemies. I mean, that's the language of the Psalms, but he is going to give us victory. Right. Now, as individual Christians, we have to be careful, though. Right. Because this is not, it is not appropriate to pray against your every perceived enemy. It's not Christian to to want constant war and conflict and to, and to want to see God consign someone to hell. Somebody said something nasty about me at lunch, <laughs> and so I pray Psalm 69 against them. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, the hard part about bearing the cross is that we are called to personally forgive those who sin against us. And it takes great discernment somewhere between forgiveness and the imprecatory psalms. You know what? What is the right use of these texts? And so, not not everybody is the, is the same kind of enemy, right? So, the Christian can truly pray without contradiction, Lord, bring about your justice, and also say, Lord, bring your mercy to these people as well, with with the assumption that it is the Lord who will br- do these things. Yeah, well, yeah, you're petitioning him to right. do it. And again, we get back to the Charles Bronson narrative here <laughs> where when we say, Lord, bring about your justice, we're not going to like look over at the Smith 686 sitting on the counter and go, ah, I see what you want me to do, <laughs> right? That's not that's not what's going to happen here. This is where I'm, I'm, I'm very much stressing the eschatological nature of the fulfillment of right. a lot of this. It, it may happen in a time of earthly war, I suppose, but more than likely, this is all going to be measured out on that great and terrible last right. day. 
Right. And really, I'd like to talk more about hell and judgment, but we can't. That's not really the subject of it. But this is true. Imprecatory psalms are prayed by saints in the Old Testament. God hears them, and it would appear that God answers them. Yeah. So, any more you'd like to say on that? Well, and you asked the question of like, you know, why don't we have them in our hymnals? Because I think people, I mean, I don't think they realize what it what it is that we're talking about here. This this is not a matter of personal vengeance, you know, however strongly worded it might be, but it is looking for God's justice. And so, I do think it is a shame that, and this is one of the things I will hold against TLH and LSB alike. You know, that we don't have the complete Psalter within the hymnal. I really think you it should be there. You can buy it for extra, though. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I know what you mean. but I know, and I've also heard the practical arguments that it wouldn't fit in the hymnal if you put it all in there, which is, I can think of any number of remedies for that. We could have taken out... <laughs> Sorry, I hate to beat, on, beat up on Earth and All Stars, but you started it. <laughs> they got that one. The Twilight Paris ones. I mean, there's a number of hymns that probably could have been let's say omitted right why why couldn't we do that why couldn't we have a full psalter and then instead of instead of printing the psalter separately you just print uh the b hymns in a separate companion (laughs) and just say lsb b volume or something like that the b roll yeah right and see this is when we're getting into angry lutheran online lutheran territory which we try to avoid but at the same time i think this one is legitimate matter of discussion. And it really segues nice into what we want to finish on, and that's the place of the Psalms within the church and within worship. And what we're going to see is they have had primacy as far as the hymn book of the church uh, since the very beginning. And so I have a very, I'm very concerned when we can start chopping out pieces of the chief liturgical text, you know, for the church since time immemorial and start adding in stuff, you know, that we're paying royalties to some Dove award-winning artist for in the, in the 20th century. (laughs) Well, and maybe to get it a little out of the angry area and back more into the more usual. Right. And I'm not angry. I know. I'm not, I'm not not an angry man by nature. (laughs) Um, I'm not praying in precatory Psalms against any particular hymnal. It's just the case of are we are we missing something when we don't have all 150? I think we are. I would agree with yeah. you on that. So, but that being said, I mean the use of psalms in history, for example. I mean those of us who have liturgical services are still going to be using the the psalms extensively, particularly in the uh, the introits and the graduals, because I mean that's where most of the language of those come from. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, historically. You know, when services used to be quite a bit longer, even in the West, they used to use complete psalms as the intro it. Yeah, you could use complete psalms. And then you would also be having your daily prayer offices where you got even more psalmody. Right. So that the having the, the Psalter memorized is not entirely uncommon It's in ancient Christianity. It's an interesting little comment by uh, Benedict, who created the Benedictine order and his cycle of praying the psalms. He makes an interesting comment that even though they were praying the entire Psalter every two weeks, that he thought of it as being somehow inferior because he says in centuries previous, they had been doing it every single week. I mean, it's it's that just that continual, you know, time spent in the Psalter, in worship, in the daily offices that really shows that this is the language of worship of the church since the very beginning. And so... And we'll go a little bit over time in this segment because we got a lot of important history here. But I'm going to try to kind of Bill and Ted just really breeze through some stuff here. Excellent. <laughs> in the Christian East, it's true that there was some hymn writing early on. But for the most part, in the church, both East and West, since the very beginning, psalmody was the preferred songbook of the church. In the West, it was almost exclusively psalms and some canticles until Ambrose of Milan in the 4th century. So if that tells us anything, that, that, the, that the hymn industry is a bit of a latecomer. Right. And that's not to say that, they're, that it's wrong to use hymns. It's just showing the importance of the Psalter in the public worship of the church and really in, in the private worship, the private devotion in the life of the church. So Ambrose comes along and then things start happening. Fast forward to the Reformation, 
and then you see Lutheranism being spread rather rapidly, in part due to Luther's hymnody. And these were texts that could be easily memorized because they were set to music. And you'll see this time and time again, texts being memorized because they're set to music. And the same thing is going to happen with a new kind of Psalter that comes about during the Reformation, particularly in the Reformed churches, whereby Psalms are set to meter so that people might more easily learn them. So at least since the Reformation, you've had kind of a duel between our use of psalmody and our use of hymns. And for the Lutheran, that might seem a bit foreign because we've always had both. Sure. Like new hymns in the case of Luther. I mean, they're literally brand new in his time. But there are other hymns. I'm talking about the ones that actually come about as a result of the Lutheran Reformation. But outside of that, what rather quickly takes hold is the concept of exclusive psalmody within the church in the Reformed countries. So that's England and pretty much most of the rest of Europe outside of the ones that remain Catholic and then the Lutherans outside of Germany, say in Scandinavia, Prague, certain areas. So the non-Lutheran European areas tend to go exclusive psalmody. And that might surprise people to learn that that is kind of true for the Anglicans at the time. Uh, We forget, we think of Anglicans as like Catholic light, but they're historically uh, more entangled with Reformed views, especially early on. 19th century changes things, but I'm reducing it down. We'll do a whole episode there. But what happens is it's a cappella worship and exclusive psalmody that becomes very important in English-speaking Christianity. And so the Psalter now has a, a central place in worship again in the Reformed churches. And yet by the 17th century, excuse me, by the by the 18th century, you have someone like Isaac Watts who comes along, and then that's kind of the end of widespread exclusive psalmody in the Reformed churches. There are a few holdouts today, but for the most part, nearly all Protestant churches are dominated by hymn singing. Sure. And take what, take what you want from it. That's just how we got here. And I, I did pretty good for four minutes. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you, you summed it up pretty nicely. And I think it's worth saying, since we're kind of going over time anyway, we don't want to be, as Lutherans, looking at something like the idea of exclusive hymnody and saying, you know, well, what a silly idea. Because I think what you have shown, like especially in the very earliest times in the church, that kind of exclusivity with the hymnody was still very much a part of the church. It's very much a part of the West. That doesn't mean that hymns are bad. You know, I'm not saying that we have to throw out the hymnal. It just means that when we are dealing with that idea of only using the Psalms as our, as our songs in worship, we are seeing something that at least has historical basis. Yeah. And it's, especially in the early church, it's psalms and other biblical canticles. Right. So the other songs that you get in places in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, but still the idea is singing scripture. Right. It's just a historical reality of how that's how worship was. Right. And how it develops. And as you say, this isn't saying we should go back to exclusive psalmody. It's just the kind of the way it was. Right. Uh, Yeah. I, I do think that sometimes... Perhaps we put a lot more emphasis on hymn composition and hymn debates than we do on just singing the Psalms. Sure. Because I promise you, a lot of the churches that are ditching that are ditching historic hymnody have long since ditched the introit and the singing of the Psalms within the church, unless they just happen to be incorporated into some like more contemporary kind of praise chorus. So once you once you give up the Psalms, it's not going to be very long before you you're going to lose historic hymnody too. And so that's that's a danger. Plus, it's also the Word of God we're talking about here that we ought to be singing. I mean, if it was good enough for him to use for worship in the time of the temple, and good enough at the time of the compilation of the New Testament, and in the days of the church fathers, I think I think it's good for us to use too. <laughs> And that's my only admonition about the hymn wars is we we should contend for both, but let's certainly not neglect um, to talk about the right place of psalmody in worship. 
Well, even even the hymns within LSB, there are a fair number of them which would very much fall into the category of these metrical psalms. I don't have them in front of me, but you know, anytime you have a a hymn that sounds suspiciously like a psalm in its wording, that's yeah, exactly well, what we're talking about. I mean, so. we have, and that's why I've been reading from this particular King James I have. It has a metrical psalter in the back. And so something like, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, mm-hmm. is a metrical setting. Right. Of a, Not the king of love my shepherd is, that's a different one, but right. not quite metrical, but same idea. And so, yeah, and so we do have examples of everything we've been talking about, even in the LSB. And I do think the LSB does a good job of bringing in the other biblical canticles as well, even though we're, we're probably less likely to sing them. Sure. Uh, nowadays. Sure. For right or wrong. It's just, they just don't get trotted out as often as listen, God is calling or something or <laughs> old rugged cross or something. Now we're really going to get the letters, Willie. Well, they're just not as, I'm just saying the biblical canticles don't get all the press. They're not as, they're not as, Catchy for to some people, I suppose. Right. So any last words on the psalm? I think, and kind of as a concluding thought with the psalms, you know, by all means, you know, pray the psalms, incorporate them into your daily prayers, your daily worship. You maybe don't have to go the, the route of the Benedictines or even the East, you know, doing it once a week or twice a week or once every two weeks. But even just, you know, using a psalm and reflecting on it in your prayer life, in your devotional life, I think will do wonders for reflecting on what God wants us to know about himself and and basically learning those psalms well enough that when you do come into those various situations in your life, you'd be able to go to them and to say, you know, this is God's word for me at this time. Right. Well, that's going to wrap things up. And if you have more questions about the Psalms or particular Psalms, send them over to us. We'd be happy to tackle them in future episodes. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined his servants to announce to us. But here the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us as speaking to God, and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call, or rather draw, each of us to the examination of himself in particulars, in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and of the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed.